On this week in FCPA, Tom and Jay look at the following stories. Credit Suisse and Tuna Bonds, Mike Volkov in Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, Tom takes a look in his FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog, and Tom and Matt Kelly go deep in Compliance into the Weeds. What is FARA? Jamie Rosenberg starts a two-part series in Grand Jury Target. Digital Innovation and Continuous Improvement, Jim Deloach tells us more in Corporate Compliance Insights. Bank and Fintech, some lawyers from Davis Polk take a look in Compliance and Enforcement blog. What will happen to executive clawbacks? Aaron Nicodemus tells us more in Compliance Week. SARS and an appalling in action. Martin Kenny tells us more in the FCPA blog. Board readiness for shareholder activism. Paul Nicola in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. Scrutiny of the arts and antiquity markets from link letters, client alert. Hiding evidence from regulation cost KMPG in the UK from the risk and compliance platform Europe. And last but not least, the SEC on auditor independence, Matt Kelly, this time from Radical Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 275 for the week ending October 29, 2021, a happy Halloween edition. As we head into Halloween, we are going to reflect on some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories on this, yes, indeed, a happy Halloween edition. Jay, what are the twins this year? They are both uh, cosplay anime characters, so uh, sorry to be so generic, but that's what the kids call it these days. And I am going as Linguini, the chef from Rat Tattooie. So I have a chef's outfit and I have a toque with a little tiny chef mouse in there running around. How, what's your costume, Tom? So uh, I'm going to put on a tux and go as a maitre d' at a French restaurant. I like that. I'll do the cooking. Yeah. You can do. You can be the maitre d. Exactly. Exactly. I stumbled upon that uh, costume about uh, a long, long time ago, and it's been my favorite because one, you get to wear a tux. Two, you always have a costume, and three, nobody ever gives you grief for not wearing a costume because you just say, "Hey, I'm a maitre d at a French restaurant." Yeah, s'il vous plaît. De nada. So tell us uh, first up. What is the continuing tale of Credit Suisse and Tuna Bonds? Well, Jay, this uh, this case is still resonating. We talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, Mike Volkoff took a look at it. I took a look at it. Matt and I took a look at it. And the thing I wanted to talk about a little bit, Jay, was that there were really two frauds going on here. Uh, the first one was the tuna boat bonds themselves, which were clearly fraudulent. Uh, obtained through bribery and corruption, and were just basically used as funding mechanisms for corrupt government officials. That was number one. Number two was when it became clear that uh, there would be no cash to pay back either the bondholders or the interest, Credit Suisse continued its fraud by wrapping the the boat bonds into a national sovereign debt bond for the country of Mozambique. So it settled, saddled Mozambique with $850 million, and uh, the first thing Credit Suisse did was pay itself off. So its own fraudulent conduct led to the bottom line, but all of those bondholders were defrauded. 
So uh, it really made me think, Jay, compliance officers have to not only look at the details of who's involved in a deal, but the overall deal itself. So if your company, and uh, Goldman Sachs probably is the best example because in the 1MDB case, they made $300 million each from three bond offerings of $3 billion or $2 billion each, which was way above market rate. And when something seems to be too good, it usually is too good, and that's something that I don't think we think about in terms of compliance officers looking at a deal. They don't look at, uh, is this out of whack in terms of the compensation or profitability back to the company? So, um, but lots uh, from Credit Suisse. So, Jay, my question to you is, what is a FARA and why is it so important now? I'm glad you gave me the pronunciation lesson because I was going to ask, what is a FARA, as in a Farrah Fawcett, my favorite Charlie's Angel. But uh, FARA stands for the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And uh, this is something that's coming to us from the Grand Jury Target by Jamie Rosenberg, and it's the first of a two-part article. Uh, the Department of Justice has had a surge in the last couple of years in FARA enforcement, releasing DOJ advisory opinions, guidance, and for the first time in 2020, mostly unredacted letters of determination. These developments are certainly due to the DOJ's focus on foreign influence on the American public. And as I said, uh, in part one, Jamie discusses the history of FARA and when it applies, and then in part two, she's going to talk about enforcement. The history was, uh, FARA was enacted in 1938 to combat Nazi propaganda during World War II. Now the act is used to promote transparency in the U.S. political process, media, and public relations sector, and other areas with respect to foreign influence. The DOJ guidance explains that the purpose of FARA is not to restrict speech, but rather to identify it as the speech of a foreign principal, and thus to enable American audiences to consider the source in evaluating the message. Between 1966 and 2015, rather, yeah, 1966 and 2019, there had been only seven FARA prosecutions. Due to the concerns of the foreign interference in the 2016 election, the DOJ has focused its efforts on FARA and has issued 16 letters of determination since 2017. So what triggers the need to register? FARA requires certain agents of foreign principals who are engaged in political activities or other activities specified under the statute to register with the DOJ within 10 days of becoming or agreeing to become such an agent. The most common issue under FARA is whether the person qualifies as an agent, so that's the focus of most of the materials from the DOJ. Generally, individuals or entities may qualify as agents to foreign principals if they present the foreign principal before the government engage in political activity or act as a public relations counsel or politician. In addressing whether a person should be viewed as an agent for the purposes of FARA, according to the guidance, DOJ will consider the following relevant factors. First, whether those requested to act were identified with specificity by the principal. Second, the specificity of the action requested. Third, whether the request is compensated or coerced. Four, whether the political activities align with the person's own interests. 
Five, whether the position advocated aligns with the person's subjective viewpoint. And finally, the nature of the relationship <clears throat> excuse me, between the person and the foreign principal. Although the DOJ has been more transparent and has issued guidance regarding FARA compliance, the statute is broad and there are serious consequences for noncompliance, including criminal charges. As a result, it's important for attorneys, individuals, and businesses who represent foreign principals to carefully evaluate whether their conduct and activities may trigger a FARA registration. Tom, here's one of our favorite commentators coming to us from CCI. What's on Jim Deloach's mind? So, Jay, uh, digital innovation is on Jim's mind. He's been writing about this for a while, and uh, he really starts off by making, uh, well, he, he gives some examples of di digital innovation that occurred during the pandemic, but in the meat of his article, he makes clear that digital innovation is a journey, not a destination, and that many companies accelerated their innovation cycles during the pandemic. And what can we learn from that? How will reinvention continue to go forward? So some of the things he suggests is focusing on people and data will enable digital in innovation to go forward. Uh, once again, you know, Skynet has not uh, become self-aware and the human element still exists. So you've got to have that. And two, innovation, an innovative culture is vital to continued success. Uh, we have talked a lot in multiple podcasts, Jay, about culture. And Jim makes clear that culture is a key differentiator in successful organizations, just as union affiliated monitor colleagues make clear that culture is the differentiator in whether you have a, a company that does business ethically and in compliance. Next, a company doesn't need to be a digital leader to succeed. Uh, it's often said that uh, who's this? you follow the smartest real estate guy and you don't outbid him for a piece of property, you buy the one across the street from him. So you can be a follower, but with agility, still succeed. Next, smart companies are well-prepared for the next disruptive scenario. Um, we've gone from disaster recovery to business continuity to business as usual. Supply chains uh, right now are on everyone's mind, and businesses have to build resilience into that production process. That means perhaps some inefficiencies, but as we saw during the pandemic, if you have a just-in-time supply chain, you may go down. And digital innovation will continue to play an important role in sustaining relevance for a wide variety of companies and industry. He poses four questions for boards and management. Do you have access to the expertise to provide oversight? Are you assessing your organization's digital readiness? How do you, how do you compare the resiliency of your company during the pandemic to your competitors? And what are the barriers to innovation and uh, digital transformation. So great stuff uh, from Jim, uh, as always. Uh, Jay, what's uh, going on with the on the intersection of banks and fintech? I'm glad you asked, Tom. This comes to us from NYU's Compliance and Enforcement blog from several attorneys at Davis Polk. And we're going to take a look at the relationship between banks and fintechs. Federal banking regulators continue to signal their attention to banks their attention to banks' relationships with third parties and particularly with fintechs. The Federal Reserve published a paper entitled Community Bank Access to Innovation Through Partnerships, which we're going to refer to as the paper, this past September 9th. The paper reflects discussions between the Federal Reserve staff and representatives of over 40 U.S. community banks, fintechs, and other industry stakeholders. 
The paper posits that community banks are increasingly using partnerships with fintechs to enhance their service to customers and leverage innovations that may otherwise be too costly or difficult for a small community bank to develop and finance on its own. Categories of Fintech Partnerships The paper addresses three principal categories of community bank partnerships. First, in operational technology partnerships, a community bank deploys third-party technology to its own processes or infrastructure to improve efficiency and effectiveness. Second, in consumer-oriented partnerships, a community bank engages a third party to enhance various customer-facing aspects of its business, and the bank continues to interact directly with with consumers. And finally, number three, in front-end fintech partnerships, a community bank's infrastructure is combined with technology developed by fintech, and here's the difference. The fintech interacts directly with the end customer and the delivery of banking products. Next, the paper identifies three considerations in determining effectiveness of community bank partnerships. Number one, commitment to innovation. Participants in the outreach discussions noted that the importance of having concrete goals and related performance indicators in mind when considering a potential fintech partnership, as well as having senior management and a board that is a long-term commitment to innovation. Second, alignment in priorities and objectives. Banks prefer to work with fintechs that share their priorities and same strategic objectives. And number three, approach, thoughtful approach to connectivity. The ease with which the third party's technology integrates with the community bank's existing infrastructure is another key consideration. This paper expresses a positive view on this partnership with fintechs and in the right circumstances and with appropriate guardrails. Officially, the paper does not reflect the view of the Federal Reserve or its staff, and it's not new guidance or an interpretation of existing guidance. Nonetheless, this paper provides clear Federal Reserve viewpoints that are helpful for all sizing of banking organizations. Tom, uh, it's time for our weekly check-in on Compliance Week. What will happen to executive clawbacks, and what does Aaron Nicodemus have to say about that? So, Jay, uh, the SEC is poised to pass an executive compensation rule that would require public employee, excuse me, companies to claw back incentives uh, based compensation if a company restates its uh, financial statements over the past three years. Uh, Really nothing, uh, I think, controversial about that. There is, however, a no fault position so that uh, executives whose companies have um, financial restatements and had the benefit of increased compensation based upon fraudulent numbers, will also have to give their money back. And for some reason, uh, executives don't think it's fair that if they weren't involved in the fraud, uh, yet they uh, were compensated by it, they have to give the money back. So uh, pretty specious argument. Nevertheless, uh, clawbacks have been getting favor over the past several years. Nothing, as I said, really controversial about that. And um, so the SEC is going to put this rule into place, and it'll be one more tool for the uh, <coughs> comp- uh, compliance officer uh, to input into a compliance program. So I applaud the move, and uh, we're going to be interesting to see where it goes from there. Uh, Jay, I asked you about FARA. Now let me ask you about SARS. So anything appalling 
you saw about FARS. Uh, this comes SARS. This comes to us from the FCPA blog, and the author is Martin Kenny, and he points out that in a recent piece for the Financial Times, Tom Kittinch of the Royal United Services Institute Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies says that as regulatory expectations have shifted toward financial institutions and combating financial crime, UK banks are now expected to file their own SARS, which stands for Suspicious Activity Reports. The National Crime Agency oversees the SAR reporting regime in the UK, and the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinSIM, does the same thing here in the States. However, there are often these are only often conduits between the regulated sector and the front-facing officers who have yet to act on the information received. Most SARS intelligence in the UK falls within the remit of those squads charged with investigating organized crime. These units, known initially as major crime units, take the brunt of the deluge of information coming their way. But there are now rumors out there that the police will soon be asking banks to commit further financial support and personnel resources into identifying cross-country crimes committed by organized crime groups. This begs the question, what's the point? The police cannot deal with the current SARS that they already receive, so what is the chance of them dealing adequately with an increase in their workload? Asking banks to spot even more potential SARS puts them between the proverbial rock and a hard place, having to generate SARS due to the regulations, but knowing that the vast majority will disappear into a black hole and never be seen again. SARS are an integral part of the anti-money laundering system across the globe. However, their deterrent effect is compromised when wrongdoers know there is little to no chance at all of being investigated. SARS holds significant amounts of intelligence linked to the crimes of fraud and money laundering. Add the information they hold onto drug trafficking, people smuggling, and modern slavery, and their veritable policing gold mine. The police in Britain need to get a grip over how they use this valuable and costly intelligence acquired from the regulated sector. And if they do not act now, the whole UK SARS regime could fall into an abyss. Not a very uh, rosy projection in this article. Uh, Tom, next up, what does board readiness have to do with shareholder activism? So, Jay, this comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, Paul D. D. Nicola from Pricewaterhouse, writing a short piece. And, uh, Jay, it's rarely you see an article in a prestigious blog or other site that is based 100% on common sense. And this article is just based on common sense. And it's not wrong to remind people a lot of times, you want to do business ethically and in compliance, use some common sense. And he gives three key pointers that... um, I know you went, it seems like you went to a vocational school that had some business courses that you've told me about over the years. Uh, maybe even you had to stay there for seven or eight years, but here's the points, and they maybe even taught this in your vocational school. Number one, get proactive. Number two, be open to listening. Number three, respond. So I don't know if those are revolutionary concepts in a business school world, Jay, but like I said, they seem to be pretty common sense. And on the one hand, you say, why does somebody have to write to remind boards to have common sense or at least utilize it? On the other hand, 
anytime we can talk about common sense as a part of your compliance program, that's probably not a bad thing. So I don't know what your thoughts might be, but uh, maybe common sense does have a greater role in business than we think, Jay. Here, here. So uh, next up, this is my favorite article of the five I have this week. It comes to us uh, from a client alert from the law firm Linklater's. And it says, scrutiny of the U.S. art and antiquities market intensifies. The recent release of the Pandora Papers once again showed us how the art and antiquities market can become a mechanism for money laundering, fraud, and even the illicit transfer of goods and wealth. While the scale of the problem is unknown, experts agree that a number of factors make the art and antiquities market particularly susceptible to financial crime. Primary among them is a culture of discretion or what market participants would call trust between regulators, uh, but market regulators would call secrecy. It is populated by intermediaries who act as experts and advisors who often shield the identity of clients. It's global with transactions, auctions, objects crisscrossing continents and traveling across natural borders. And this is characterized by high valuation transactions with pieces frequently selling in the tens of millions, and then in sums, tens of billions of dollars of art and antiquities change hands every year. It should be a little surprise that U.S. authorities are finally taking note. The Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020 became law on January 1st of this year, kicking off a series of measures aimed at cracking down on illicit finance in the U.S. art and antiquities market. The first of these is to amend the definition of the financial institution and the Bank Secrecy Act from 1970. The addition of antiquities dealer to financial institution is less unusual than it might seem to others observers. Others, The current definition of the financial institution includes a long list of seemingly non-financial businesses, including credit card companies, insurance companies, dealers and precious metals, and even casinos. All of these industries have been regulated under the BSA for decades, and all of them seem similarly to facilitate transactions where high-value items change hands. A few measures have already been set in motion by FinCEN and the Treasury's OFAC. FinCEN issued a notice in March that notified the public of the impending AMLA measures and warned financial institutions to be aware of potential illicit activity. OFAC, not to be outdone, issued an advisory last October that highlighted sanctioned risks associated with the art market and described prominent examples of individuals and groups who have used this market to evade sanctions. Two of the sanctioned invaders discussed in the OFAC notice are Akadi and Boris Rottenberg, Russian oligarchs who were the subject of a 147-page congressional report that detailed how they were able to continue accessing the U.S. market by purchasing over $18 million of art from a prominent auction house. This report illustrates the justifiable concern that the U.S. art and antiquities market may be used as a mechanism for illegitimate organizations to access funds in the U.S. financial system, and this underlines the potential for the increasing focus, both by regulators and enforcement authorities, on this space. Tom, next up, what kind of evidence is KMPG hiding in the Before we get to that story, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. 
UK? Well, I'm not sure about KMPG. KPMG? KPMG uh, got into some really serious trouble. And Jay, I think they need a serious affiliated monitors look uh, because uh, I think, well, uh, American listeners may not be aware, but they uh, forced a client into bankruptcy and uh, got into trouble for that because they were representing the purchaser on the other side of the bankruptcy and they made a clean uh, clean 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 clock in terms of a fee well when the british financial watchdog started looking around um kpmg and the partner in charge just lied about it and uh they were fined 13 million pounds for this conflict of interest and uh they were also penalized because of the uh, basically frauds and lies they gave to the regulators. The partner in charge, one David Costlywood, uh, an appropriate name, I think, uh, <laughs> called it a witch hunt, and even with a 500,000 pound fine imposed on him by the disciplinary court. And, uh, you know, you just have to uh, wonder about KPMG. They continually are in trouble in the United Kingdom for just having a toxic culture. Uh, now they're uh, regulators looking other bankruptcies in England that KPMG has been involved with to see uh, what uh, nefarious acts they may have been involved with. But KPMG just cannot seem to get its ethical act together. Um, lots of trouble. So what do you got on auditor independence from the coolest guy in compliance? So this comes to us from Matt Kelly from his own blog, Radical Compliance. And uh, Matt's going to ruminate some thoughts upon uh, a recent, uh, I guess, recent remarks by Paul Munter, who's the SEC's acting chief accountant. The top accountant at the Securities and Exchange Commission has fired off a statement this week about the importance of audit firm independence. Ooh, sounds like something that KPMG might have used, huh? And corporate audit committees overseeing the relationship with an external auditor. And this, these remarks came out almost one year to the day after the Trump administration's SEC relaxed auditor independence rules. Mr. Munter said, The independence of the auditor in both fact and appearance is foundational to the credibility of financial statements. While sourcing high-quality independent auditor is a key responsibility of the audit committee, compliance with the auditor independence rules is a shared responsibility of all issuers, its audit committee, and the auditor. Munter then proceeded to talk about the affirmative duty that all sides have to identify potential threats to the auditor independence, including the auditor's relationship with third parties doing business with the auditor's client company. This proactive monitoring requires management, the audit committee, and the independent auditor to each consider the potential effects of their existing business and service relationships with other companies on the auditor's ability to remain independent of the issuer if contemplated transaction is completed. Here's the standard for independence. Munter pointed to four key principles within the rule that are worth knowing. 
Does the auditor's relationship with the client or provision of a service, number one, create a mutual or conflicting interest between the accountant and the client? Does it place the accountant in a position of auditing his or her own work? Does it result in the accountant acting as a management or employee of the audit client? And finally, does it place the accountant in a position of being an advocate for the audit client? If the answer is yes to any of the above, you have a problem. So now Matt, being Matt and always wondering about things, why are we getting this message and why now? Matt can't help but wonder why Munter released this statement about auditor independence now. And of course, the simplest answer might be that he wanted to get people to think about audit committees and audit firms and independence. It's good for regulators to reemphasize rules from time to time. But Matt's other thought was that whether someone soon, sometime soon the SEC might revisit the rules it adopted last year to relax auditor independence. That doesn't seem to be on their rulemaking agenda now, but if Chairman Gary Gensler wanted to revisit auditor independence too, I think he'd have no problem saying so. For the record, however, the Democratic SEC commissioners who were on the commission last year and were not fans of the relaxed independence standards pushed, that were pushed through, their beef was that the relaxed rules give too much discretion to audit firms themselves to decide whether an independence violation is material or just technical. By writing this bronze standard into the rule, however, we place greater reliance on auditors to decide what is or what is not material. Thus, we rely on auditors to subjectively determine when their own independence is impaired, and we do so without providing specific guidelines. That was their complaint a year ago, and Matt suspects Munter is subtly warning audit firms and audit committees to keep that point in mind as we prepare for a new audit season. So, Tom, that takes care of our stories for the week. What's happening at Compliance Week in 2022? So, Jay, uh, Compliance Week announced the Compliance Week 2022 conference. And lots of excitement, as you might expect, from Compliance Week, but I think we should be excited as well. Uh, the uh, SECE had a, a small event this year, much smaller than normal. And Compliance Week is going to be the first major event uh, in the 2022 season. I recognize Ethosphere will also have their event uh, in March. Well, at least I hope they'll be able to do so. But Compliance Week is uh, one of the big ones. It's going to move to the JW Marriott so they can increase their size this year. And uh, Dave Leeford is, is leading the effort now. He's been promoted at Compliance Week, and this will be one of his responsibilities. Registration is open now. Call for speakers is going to go out shortly. Uh, Ethosphere is, um, has opened uh, its application process for the world's most ethical companies uh, for 2022 award. Once again, their uh, big announcement or, or conference, rather, hopefully will take place in March. And uh, the application process closes November 12th. Uh, Jay, I'm not sure, I guess, well, I'm not sure how many subways you've ridden in your life, uh, but uh, in this week's Effing Argentina, Greg Greenberg and I explore uh, mal odor on the subway, <laughs> and apparently there's a whole etiquette of eating on the subway, which as a southerner, I was really not aware of not being around uh, subways very often. Uh, this week on the Compliance Life, I concluded um, 
of my four-part series with uh, John Mellican, Managing Director at Exeter, Exeter. And here he talks about moving from the CCO chair to the consulting world and what he learned from the CCO chair that he thinks makes him a better consultant. Uh, of course, if you want the top uh, single author volume on uh, the nuts and bolts of compliance, the Compliance Handbook second edition is still available. And uh, once again, I was on bestseller TV over that. So, Jay, uh, you have a big um, kind of trick-or-treat plan in the new neighborhood. Is it family-friendly? Uh, you, uh, you have some, are you going to guys go to a party or, or what's kind of happening in the prestigious Orange County? Uh, we're going to spend some time at the happiest place on earth this weekend. They do a special trick-or-treat thing there and we're going to wear our costumes. And then we're also going to be trick-or-treating in the new neighborhood. So we've, Millie and Michaela have a whole weekend planned out and they will be officially celebrating Halloween as teenagers and uh, since we are in the fall and one of us is in the World Series, uh, what are your thoughts so far and what are you doing uh, astro-watching-wise this weekend? So, um, well, uh, we had our typical first game blip, no problem. Uh, we came back in game two. Uh, I'm a little uh, conflicted because... Uh, I'd like to just see us close it out in five, but that means they won't win at home. And we've never won the World Series at home, which but that would require game six. So I'm a little bit torn. Uh, nevertheless, we're right on schedule. Uh, we're rocking and rolling. Uh, the bats were out, and they're going to continue to be out Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So that's uh, my prediction, Jay. We got the rally nuns going for us. Perfect. So... Um, well, if, any, if cool. any homers would like to support Tom Fox, he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And uh, me, uh, being happy to have played with the casino's money and gotten as far as the Red Sox did, you can still contact me as a happy Red Sox fan at jrosen, initial J-R-O-S-E-N, at affiliatedmonitors.com. So, we'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 275, for the week ending October 29th, 2021, the Happy Halloween edition. Hopefully, uh, when you're going through your candy spoils this weekend, you'll listen along, and uh, we hope to see you next week when we all get together and take a look at This Week in FCPA. Uh, Jay, I need to add a postscript. Um, my podcast series, Looking Back on 9-11, won a gold medal from the Davy Awards. Uh, so I wanted to thank everyone uh, who was involved in it. It was a very emotional uh, series for me. Your colleague, Eric Feldman, was, was very emotional and, and really heartfelt on his remarks. But all the guests made it, uh, for me, the probably the top uh, uh, single series that uh, I've been involved with. So I was very thrilled to, uh, to get that award. So that's the end of the postscript. And as Jay said, we will be back with you next week. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. We've linked to all the stories, of course, in the show notes. So check them out for additional information and reading material. As I mentioned, I have a new podcast, the Hill Country Podcast. So if you're interested in the Hill Country of Texas, its people, places, and things, check out the Hill Country Podcast. Also premiering in October was Design Thinking and Compliance, where with my colleague Karsten Tams, we talk about the social engineering tool of design thinking 
for a compliance program. I know you will find it useful. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.